Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Our last new show of the summer is a Q&A program. Joining me will be Catherine Wagley, a critic and journalist you've probably read in Artnet, Carla, Momus, and a bunch of other places too, including the old LA Weekly. Wagley is also working on a book, about which you'll hear in a moment. Catherine Wagley and I and your questions, after the break. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford Endpapers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, Endpapers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at getty.edu art. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can Wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise, with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, featuring the work of more than 60 Black artists who defined Black identity, creativity, activism, and social responsibility over two decades. Soul of a Nation explores what it meant to be a Black artist in America during two revolutionary decades, from the 1960s in the civil rights movement to the early 1980s in the emergence of identity politics. See works by pivotal artists like Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Roy de Carava, David Hammonds, Lorraine O'Grady, and Faith Ringgold. Accompanying the exhibition is a dynamic lineup of virtual programming, artist talks, discussions, films, and more. Now on view through August 30th. Visit mfah.org slash soul. And we're back. Catherine Wagley, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Uh, we have talked before on podcasts, but not on this show. We've talked on the Momus podcast. How are you? How are you getting by? How are you working in the midst of America's summer of disaster? Well, you know, I'm working slowly. I feel like, but I'm also have mostly worked on things that don't require me to see art, which is one of the ways I'm getting by. And so are you hinting at the book you have in progress? I actually, I wasn't even thinking about that, but that's very true. I've spent a lot of time working on that. I feel really privileged that I was able to take that time, like that I was in a situation economically where I I did have to hustle and I did have some income fall through during this pandemic, as so many people have you know, so many very difficult situations. And I thankfully was able to take a few weeks and actually have 
time to work on a, on a book project that I've been working on for a number of years. But I've also, you know, worked on, I'm working on an essay right now that's kind of about the way museums are handling the unionization efforts of their staff through the pandemic and also working on some writing that allows me to kind of like look at big pictures rather than look at art, which I haven't seen much of lately. We'll come back to the book in a moment, but the way the pandemic has accelerated the already underway unionization efforts across the sector is, for me, the silver lining in the cloud. It's the most exciting thing that's happened within the sector in a number of years. But it's also really scary because museums have been laying off and furloughing a number of the union organizers. So I think that the the effort and the energy will come out of this very strong, but it also might be a bit disabled by by these layoffs. I, I mean, I think we're really seeing how many, how, how a number of art museum trustees fail to understand at the most basic level the differences between running a corporation or a for-profit business and being a trustee of a nonprofit. And I think that that's another of the, the really big stories of the last six months, and that is that the quality of trusteeship at a lot of places has been exposed as poor, unaware, and clueless, and that the leadership at a num- the staff leadership at a number of museums has been exposed as, if anything, worse. It's really not been pretty, I guess is one, one way to put it. SFMOMA, Philadelphia, the Guggenheim, all places where there's no reason to have any confidence in staff or board leadership going forward. I, you know, None of us knows when, I'm sure there are other places I'm not thinking of, those are just the three I'm most aware of most often these days. You know, I don't, none of us know when normalcy will return and what form normalcy will take, but it's hard to picture those museums functioning in a way that is respected within the field, given what's gone on there in the last six months. Yes, I agree. So you are working on a book. I don't think it's something that's broadly known, but it's something um, that I've been fortunate enough to have heard about for a couple of years now. What are you working on? What's, what's, what's the book about? I'm working on a book about four gallerists who were working in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 1970s and were largely showing conceptual art and were also very generous and nurturing, supportive toward their artists, but have been mostly left out of written histories of Los Angeles art and art of that time. And the group that I'm working with right now, Virginia Dwan is the best known, and I included her because she showed a lot of the artists that the other women, Claire Copley, Eugenia Butler, and Rika Mizuno also showed. They're all women, and I think that their gender certainly contributed to the ways in which their narratives have been shaped and left out of written history. But I also feel like it's their enter- it's their attitude and their approach and um, their artist rosters that's the most defining out that's the element that brought them together and it's why I'm working on them together but I'm interested in a few things I'm really interested in their stories the reason I'm doing this work is because when I first learned about them especially Claire Copley, Rika Mizuno and Eugenia Butler because Dwan I she's she's been better historicized so I knew more about her when I first learned about them I was just really delighted I was delighted by the approach they took to their artists. I was delighted by the work they showed and the way they showed it. And I found out about it 
through two small shows that happened on the periphery of the first Pacific Standard Time, that big Getty-funded initiative to celebrate SoCal art from 1945 to 1980. And then one show was a really small one at Crossroads School, a private school in Santa Monica, just a tiny gallery, a one-room gallery. And it just had a few installations that had been at these galleries. And they were all delicate, witty. Um, one was a sound installation by William Levitt. And then and then there was another show that was at a former Walgreens in a strip mall in West Hollywood that was put on by the nonprofit Nomadic Division and also Corazon del Sol, who's Eugenia Butler's granddaughter. And it was a sort of a was meant to be a recreation of the Eugenia Butler Gallery. And I was really surprised when I walked in to see these artworks that some of them by artists that I knew and some of them by artists that I didn't know recontextualized for me, like seeing them together and seeing them kind of installed in a very, um, somebody I talked to, the, the gallerist Tom Jimerson said that the Corazon, Eugenia's granddaughter, really managed to capture the anarchy of Eugenia Butler's original space and the way she installed that show. And I, I was like, oh, so this is what, like the story is different. The story of these artists, some of whom I've known for a long time, like Diderot and John Baldessari and Joseph Kasuth, all showed with Eugenia. The artists I know, but seeing their story recontextualized really changes it. And so that was kind of what started the project is seeing those shows and thinking about, okay, why did, why do I not know about this? And what am I missing by not knowing? So, I mean, part of what I'm doing in writing this book is just finding their stories because they're not written. I'm doing a lot of oral histories with artists they worked with, but I'm also interested in how to tell the stories in a way that honors their difference and honors the fact that that there were reasons they were left out. And those reasons were their gender, were their approach, were, were their lack of self-promotion, which some of them, Rico Mizuno is kind of, I don't know if the right word is defiant, but she, she says she never cared about that. That's not why she was doing this. And that was part of her identity for herself is not being somebody who wanted to be important or wanted to be famous or wanted to like be successful in a in the way that maybe like an Irving Blum who co-ran Ferris Gallery wanted to be successful. I mean, one of the interesting things about the project is two things. One, the story of galleries and dealers in London's art scene over the many, you know, over the last century, century and a half has been well examined by art historians. Um, ditto New York. But in L.A., the story has for far too long at this point begun and end with Ferris and the Ferris boys to the exclusion of all all else. And then just kind of thinking about conceptualism, having a gallery home or a number of gallery home homes is in some ways kind of a rejoinder to either the dominant narrative of conceptualism's rise. Yeah, because these were, these were galleries who were very early supporting this work and existing in some ways for this work. I mean, I think Eugenia Butler and Claire Copley, more so than Duana Mizuno, wanted to show this kind of work, ephemeral work, work that work that didn't conventionally exist in gallery spaces. But at the same time, I say that, you know, that there was a lot of newness to gallery spaces in general in Los Angeles at that point. Not, not to say there hadn't been galleries since the early 1900s, because there had been, or not to say that there hadn't been galleries all along La Cienega for, I don't know, over well over a decade by that by the point by the time that they opened. Do you have a sense of when you'll be ready to share the book with the world? You know, I, I everything feels so uncertain right now in general in general. <laughs> I have a draft of a first chapter that's actually a draft that's readable that that is I, I wouldn't want to share it with the world yet, but it's no longer like in those early first draft stages where I wouldn't want to share it with anyone. 
it's in a, it's in a space where I'm ready to share it with humans and get feedback. And so hopefully sooner than later. Well, that should be fun. I can't, I can't wait to read it. There's a lot of the West Coast's art history and its role in America's and indeed global art history. I don't know. Um, one of my, one of my favorite investigations of recent years was uh, MoMA did a show on the relationships between conceptual artists in Amsterdam and LA. And I, I have that catalog and I've wanted to learn more about that ever since. And so I can't wait for your book. Thank you. So it's, uh, it's late August in the art world. And so I thought it would be a great time to do just our second Q and a show. Our first was with Jillian Steinhauer who writes for among other places, I guess mostly these days, the New York times. And so I, I ask listeners for questions and we got a bunch and they almost all kind of hew to the present, which, which, which is good because I am not sure I am delighted with the conversations about the present I am seeing in other media. I am also a curmudgeon that way. So let's start with a question from Susan who asks, many art museums have issued statements about becoming more welcoming and more equitable in their programming and focus. What are you looking for that will demonstrate that they mean it, that they're taking their roles in no longer perpetuating racism seriously? You know, I mean, we, we brought this up already in our, in our discussion in the intro is that what they could do is recognize their unions and their union's demands and embrace the labor protections that their staff have already been fighting for. That seems like a really tangible thing that they could do that would show that in good faith they want to change and they want to be more welcoming and equitable because, you know, many of the staff who have unionized include the the artists and art workers of color who are employed by the museum. Like and many of the unions from their start, I know this was a real important thing for the new museum union when it founded. We're really looking to protect diversity and pr protect their colleagues of color with the contract that they drew up with the new museum. And um, the museum was very resistant to their diversity and non-discrimination protections that they wanted to add to the contract. So, so I think that's, I mean, I think that's also what's happening. Some of these museums are putting out statements and their own staff are cre creating anonymous Instagram accounts or Twitter accounts to criticize them because because they know that based on the way the institutions treat them, that they're not acting out these values they say they want to uphold. Those Instagram and Twitter accounts are really interesting. They range in quality is not the word I want, but they range in broad applicability of the address of individual posts, if you will. But as we're, as we're talking, about three hours ago, the New York Times published a story that mined, uh, that in part mined those Instagram and Twitter accounts for, for the reporting and the piece that on one hand cited the salaries directors at various museums are to not make and included kind of as part of the um, conversation those very IG accounts. I, I found it amusing and disappointing that the New York Times is happy to cite <laughs> anonymous Instagram accounts, but apparently can't read a, a 990 <laughs> to, to really dig into how charities, and in this case, the art museum sector works or work. 
I, I agree with you about unionization. I think it's the most important. I think, you know, as I said a moment ago, it's, it's about the most important thing that's happened within the sector in the last half decade. Some of that is because executive salaries have run out of control, but also because entry-level to mid-level salaries at art museums have horribly trailed educational requirements for those positions for decades now. It is unconscionable. It is it is gross that an art museum could expect somebody to have a master's degree for a given position and pay that person in the 30s or in the or in the 40s. That's not acceptable from a doing what's right point of view, but it's also not competitive with what other industries and nonprofit sectors pay people with those educational backgrounds. The field is behind. Boards have failed to lead on that issue now for many years. My hope, with no real basis for it, is that the leadership foundations, the Fords, the Mellons, the Gettys, will consider union recognition and pay issues as core to what they expect from institutions they are willing to make grants to. One thing that would matter a lot is if Mellon or Ford or Terra or you know, loose would say, you know, if you are as an institution, don't meet these minimum baselines for paying people with these levels of experience. And if you don't have track records of promoting and enabling the careers of non-white men and non-white women, then we're not interested in supporting your work. You know, I think there are a lot of structural changes that are possible and that would be enormously meaningful and and I guess I'm still waiting for a leadership like that to emerge. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, I wrote a piece in January, I believe, about MOCA in Los Angeles' voluntary recognition of its union. In, in talking to people for that piece, you know, it was clear that, that they felt like MOCA was really pressured to voluntarily recognize the union because of what had happened at the Marciano Art Foundation in November of 2019 when the museum not only didn't recognize the union, but completely shut down and fired everybody that had left such a bad, it was such a bad look that MoCA was kind of under social cultural pressure at the time to be like, oh yeah, okay, we'll recognize the union. But even though it did that, it then furloughed and laid off quite a number of the unionizing staff members once the pandemic hit. So, so there's also this like, I mean, this is this doublespeak is what a lot of people have been calling out with these museum statements about equity and anti-racism is that, okay, you say this, but you literally just did this totally other contradictory thing. The, the thing that jumps out to me that every major American art museum should do is if, if they take anti-racism seriously, isn't part of that considering your own institution's history of racism? What are you addressing if you haven't examined your own role in perpetuating inequity, racism, or sexism? We had John Edwin Mason on the show a couple of weeks ago to, to to talk about this, about how kind of an institutional audit or an institutional self-examination by an outside historian would be valuable, meaningful, and could guide the institution in a way going forward that uh, would be more impactful than almost any other kind of starting point. A number of the museums that we've already mentioned would obviously plainly benefit from such, as would their staffs, as would their audiences. I mean, 
I don't understand. I, I can't fathom how SF MoMA can move forward from its spring and summer of utter disaster without such a process. And I think that goes for the Guggenheim too. I, 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 I am flabbergasted at the way Guggenheim senior staff have publicly treated people they hired to curate at least one exhibition without institutional apology, without any sense of self-examination, without, this is all just a long way of saying, if, if, if as an institution you're not taking anti-racism seriously, if you're not looking at your own role in perpetuating racism and in your own, in the case of the Guggenheim, your own recent racist behavior. Yes, absolutely. I think I think an audit would be like, you know, stop saying all these things about what you value or just like say, OK, we're going to deal with our own our own history first. And, and let me just point point out, I'm not just talking about what institutions have done in the last 30 years or in the last 50 years. I mean, take the Smithsonian Institution, for example, its first secretary helped Confederates, slave owners and unrepentant arch racists get significant appointments in the years after the Civil War. And the Smithsonian has never, to my knowledge, examined its role in migrating extreme racism in senior positions at educational institutions and other institutions around the country. This isn't just, you know, a World War II or Vietnam and forward issue. Shouldn't be, anyway. Second question from Renee. Are there artists whose post-pandemic work you particularly want to see, artists whose possible artistic response to COVID or to the pandemic particularly interests you? Well, you know, it's funny. I've seen very little art since March. And even, you know, in May, Parker Gallery, which is a gallery here in Los Feliz, um, has a very interesting program. They did an outside show i forget what it was called but it was it was one of those drive-by art installations that people were doing earlier on in the pandemic they just had sculptures out in their lawn and i i couldn't do it like i just couldn't go there i i liked a lot of the artists one of them ronnie schneier had this sculpture that i didn't see in person but i've seen images of called moment of truth which is kind of like a ceramic and wax smushed face with candles that I don't know if they were ever lit in the image I saw they weren't lit but it was it was a really beautiful sculpture and it would have been nice to see it in a yard but there was something about like I just I wasn't sure how to feel about art yet or about this push to keep putting it out there amidst everything that was happening you know the, earlier today actually because of this some of the writing I'm doing right now I was rereading this essay that Dana Koppel who was a an editor at the New Museum and one of the founding members of the New Museum's union, and now no longer, she was laid off from the New Museum. She wrote an essay while she was, no, she wasn't yet laid off. She was just furloughed called The Museum Does Not Exist, where she was thinking about art museums and labor issues. And she was said in it something like, I'm not interested in, in what art looks like or in asking what art looks like right now. I'm interested in, you know, this, these questions that actually exist beyond the right now. What does art look like when you can't pay the rent? Or what does art look like when you don't have health insurance and you're sick? And I, I, I think that I, I don't know, when those questions were so big and looming, the, the question of what an online exhibition looks like just seemed really, really beyond the scope of what I could take on in my mind. The whole online exhibition silliness, I mean, it's called a web page, people, is 
is an absurdity. It is a, it is a market driven hilarity. Totally, but but you know this question that Renee asked, I I mean I think that what I'm more worried about is who who will be making art post pandemic and who will be who will be showing it and what are those uh, galleries are going to close they're already closing and it's not the big ones that are going to close it's those more intimate experimental spaces likely and artists are struggling and and they've lost income opportunities and you know it's it's very it's not true that economic you know that romantic economically struggling artist who still manages to make this genius work like there are tons of artists all the time who have to drop out because they can't afford to stay in the life of an artist so so yeah I want I'm worried about that I, I want to think about what we can do to make sure that artists are still able to show um, and do experimental work in an economically precarious time that's an important question that's difficult for realization either in exhibition or article or, or or book form but perhaps as such is all the more appropriate to a moment in which tangible outcomes are particularly challenging and to say like i've had um i have had some nice studio visits over zoom like not many like two but but it was nice to just spend time with an artist in their space and talk to them about what they were doing and what they were making and thinking about and how they were navigating this moment. Like that felt a lot more doable and appropriate to me than like going to a drive-by show or, you know, showing up at an appointment with a mask on at a commercial gallery. I have a hard time identifying specific artists, but there is kind of a thing in recent art that I've been thinking about a lot and that's systems painting. And how artists such as Terry Winters or Julie Maritou or no, let's just go with those two have made systems, some sometimes really large, broad global systems, sometimes much smaller, more specific systems, the focus of their work. And and because of some of the strangeness of life in the middle of the pandemic, I, I feel like a dot in a systems painting that, that we all know that we're part of a systemic response to a pandemic that has so far killed 170,000 Americans. And so, yeah, I think, of, I, 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 I think about system painting and how painters and artists interested in systems are responding to a moment, especially given that within the United States, our systems for addressing a public health emergency were decimated both by neoliberalism and a Republican presidential administration that has tried to dismantle as much of the federal safety net and the federal address of issues as much as it can, which is a situation in which artists have significant utility and in which their work has a lot of meaning. John asks, uh, and boy, I think about this one a lot. What impact will the pandemic have on art history and what books and exhibitions we'll see in the next couple of years, which I take as both a nuts and bolts question about what's going to be up, but also a more abstract question about ah, what's going to be up. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the fear, right, is that the impact will be that we have less or fewer fewer books and exhibitions in the next couple of years. And, and I'm always worried in times of, in times of great economic precarity, this was a fear. The last few years as Los Angeles has become increasingly cost prohibitive for artists, 
that that the result will be less less risk, less less experimentation in the work you're doing because because either because the stakes are too high and you have to do something that you know has a market or or because the or because as as I mentioned in answer to Renee's question because those those people who are taking risks have moved back home or taken day jobs for the time being because they didn't have an economic safety net to fall back on so so I worry about that like I worry about I worry about homogeneity having more of it which is never good but I'm also but you know in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the uprisings that followed there's a lot of it's also you know exciting if if there really is more openness to change as as institutions and publishers are are saying there is if we do actually start being more open to bringing more voices into established institutions and publishing more voices that would be really exciting just seeing this kind of like I mean, I want, I always want to see different stories told about art, about art history, about what's happening now. You know, certainly one of the impacts the pandemic is having on art history is a lot of us uh, are having trouble researching it. <laughs> um, I mean, I haven't been in a library or archive since, uh, since about March 1st. And I know that an enormous number of our colleagues are in that same position. That's having an impact on exhibitions too. You know, work I'd been doing is, you know, now just kind of stuck in another world. And I know that's true at lots of places. I am absolutely seizing on on good news wherever I find it. Today, the Georgia Museum of Art, which is the art museum at the University of Georgia in Athens, let it be known that it's organizing an Emma Amos survey for next year that will travel to at least two other museums, both in the Northeast. I, I imagine that once that shows up, about 17 places will want to sign on to it very quickly. I'm really looking forward to that. Books are going to be, are, 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 are going to be interesting. I talk with and have worked with a number of university presses in recent years. And of course, I talk with a bunch of university presses on a weekly or even more often than that basis for this program. You know, their staffs in many cases, you know, are just haven't been in the office together since March and won't be until September. And just from a simple getting things done point of view, having to do everything at distance on a lawn or over Zoom just takes longer. I, I, I expect a slowing probably into 22 or 20, 2022 or 2023. As for exhibitions, I mean, this 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 shouldn't, you know, when it comes to art museums, I mean, collections, people, collections, more collection shows should be done anyway. More investigations of objects in collections should be done anyway. You know, small shows, you know, 1,500 square foot shows that explore single artworks, you know, that kind of thing is really underdone. There's a big collection show coming up this fall at the Blanton at the University of Texas titled Expanding Abstraction, Pushing the Boundaries of Painting in the Americas, 1958 to 1983. It's a Carter Foster curated show looking at abstraction outside the usual narrow isms one gets in Janssen's, for example. You know, Janssen's being kind of like the standard undergraduate art history text. So I, I think, you know, there's no catalog for that Blanton show. I have a checklist on my computer, I must admit. And I hope museums do more of that stuff. Use collections more 
and especially at a moment of what many places are claiming is a renewed commitment to investigating neglected histories, purposefully often neglected histories, you know, look in your own vaults. Look, especially for university art museums, look across your campuses. I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately about the collections of Native American-related visual material, whether it's visual culture material from the mid-19th century to photographs to whatever else that are across the University of California museums. California being, you know, the site of, uh, you know, a, a particularly horrific American genocide. And yet I can't think of a, a single University of California museum that has committed itself to investigating that history through its collections, through its institutional collections. And quite often you hear, oh, well, you know, we're at the art museum and those collections are over at the library. So, you know, well, I mean, that's just a bad answer. And so I'm hoping that or it would be wonderful if at a moment, you know, those lines should be dissolved in pursuit of investigation, because that's not how history is written, not how history is exhibited. Yeah, it would be it would be great if if I don't know, institutions are so slow to become more flexible. But this is such a great time for more flexible thinking about what can be done, you know, how different collaborations can happen, how you can access the value and the knowledge of the people you already have there with you of the work you already have. Or or to bring people in from the outside because your people have steadfastly not done that work for many years. I mean, I can think of a bunch of places uh, where I have researched or where I have tried to research where senior curatorial staff has been an impediment to those kinds of investigations. Often you have to go, often directors and chief curator types have to go outside institutions to get around those people, and they should. And if that makes gatekeepers embarrassed, good. (laughs) I mean, they're already embarrassed right now for the most part. So why not just lean into it? Yes, yes. I mean, there's no, you know, it's not, it's it's for many reasons. The present is not a moment for daintiness. Sherry asks, should art museums, especially museums with static collection hangs, re-examine their collection galleries as a response to the many events of the last year? If so, how? And before I cede the floor, I'll note that on our last Q&A show with with Jill Steinhauer, got this question a bunch of times. And this same question was asked again uh, by different people a bunch of times. People are thinking about collection galleries, and I think should be. Collection and collection galleries are the most public declaration of institutional focus, intent, and interest there is? The short answer, of course, is yes, but they always already should have been doing this. You know, it, it's like if if these recent uprisings caused by violent murders do something that former uprisings and former violent murders and 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 this long history of violent racism and this long history of white supremacy at institute, art institutions couldn't do, then okay. But it's not better late than never situation. The lateness has and will continue to cause a lot of trauma. But yes, they should reconsider collection hangs and the way they frame and narrate the work in their collection and whether some works should continue to be hung or seen. A month or two ago, 
maybe longer, maybe it was June, the Detroit Institute of Arts digital experience designer um, resigned and wrote her resignation letter, posted it on Medium. Her name is Andrea Montiel de Schumann, and I hope I pronounced her last name correctly because I, it's the first time I've said it out loud, but it was a really eloquent and powerful letter, and she talked in it about one instance that's really relevant to this question, which was these two Gauguin paintings had been installed in a show. One was Spirit of the Dead Watching, um, which is of a 13-year-old Tahitian girl. It's that, it's that one where she, she's laying on her back and she's nude and there's a lot of purple in it. And she was a girl named Tahama who was molested and given syphilis by Gauguin. And, um, and that was hung in a gallery adjacent to um, or near the Yellow Christ, which is a painting of a yellow, of a crucifix of which Christ looks yellow. Let me jump in. That was a, a lone show. I don't know that I quite understood. It was works from uh, the Albright Knox in Buffalo and works from the Detroit collection at the DIA. And so they were hung together in, 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 ex, in an exhibition. And Andrea de Montiel de Schumann, as her job as a digital experience designer and somebody who thinks about education and the way arts educational information is given to audiences, was really disturbed by by the fact that the Gauguin's treatment of this girl who was his subject was not treated or addressed in the exhibition didactics. And it bothered her in particular because her own her own history of sexual abuse was triggered when she saw it. So she knew, having had that experience herself, that other people would be similarly triggered. And she felt like this was a real misstep for the museum not to address this. She wasn't asking them to take this piece down. She was asking them to address what was in it. <laughs> and the, the museum didn't. And, and she talks about that that situation, the ways in which she was dismissed in her letter. But I think like that's so, so, I mean, at the very least, we need to be thinking about how we narrate these pieces that we know are part of a violent history and how we represent collections in a way that acknowledges these narratives. Although I don't, I think that in some cases, maybe there's some artwork that doesn't need to be shown, but if it's not shown, we should also think about how we narrate its exclusion so that excluding it doesn't become an erasure of a violent history. And I think about that a lot. I think about that also in relationship to what happens when artists who were formerly marginalized get like re-embraced into the canon or to the mainstream narrative of art history. Like, and oftentimes they're just like, they're just like put in, (laughs) put back into the chronology as if they were never gone. It happens a lot with um, artists of color and female artists. And I feel like that's really problematic. Like we also need a narrative to, to address what we put back in to the the permanent collection hang, like the stuff that's been in storage because we didn't know it was important. Now suddenly we've decided it's important. We need to acknowledge what happened to create that shift. That's why I want institutions to undertake self-examinations. <laughs> uh, every time I see those inconceivable fissure floors at SF MoMA, I think of everything you just mentioned and how that could possibly have been allowed so Ms. Ms. Kruth has a, a story at the top of the Ostracon right now called Seeding Power on Reparations in the Arts. And it's a consideration of what reparations for black Americans might look like in in the arts. Or, for example, for California institutions in particular, maybe reparations for indigenous people who were also enslaved starting in 1850 and probably before, but were legally enslaved in California starting in 1850. You know, and that's a framework that we've already seen one American city, Asheville, North Carolina, uh, embrace legislatively, and that art museums might do well to consider as as well. 
and I, you know, just the one other thing um, in terms of collection hangs, one thing I hope does not happen. I understand and appreciate the motivations behind, for example, all women collection hangs. But at the same time, those projects such as that tend to be isolating, tend to remove artists from the context in which they wanted their work to be considered. I don't know very many artists who are women who only want their work considered in the context of their female peers. Use collection rehangs to elevate and argue for, not patronize. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and some of those things, I don't know. It seems like some of those really easy solutions, like, oh, we've not been showing enough women. We'll do an all-women collection hang. Again, like sidestep that thing we're talking about, a deep rethinking of what the problems in the way you've displayed your collection actually are. Right. It is It is a virtue signal rather than a serious institution-wide examination. And finally, we have a question from David who asks, you've written about how the art world never makes asks of political candidates the way other communities or interest groups do. David is speaking of my writing, which has occasionally returned to the same things over and over for many years. David finishes his question by asking, what should we be asking of political candidates this year? And it's too late for the art world to have asks of the presidential candidates. But as I have recently moved to a new place, and as candidate forums are are ramping up here at the end of the month, I have been thinking about this. So what would you like to see people who care about art asking of city councilors or county supervisors or state senators? Well, this is like, it's it's such an interesting thing because I, I think that, you know, oftentimes art groups or art artists or the art world has this this tendency to make it when it's when it's faced with political realities it, you know, creates its own little groups of activist, artist activist groups, or it asks questions about how art can speak into activism or how art can speak to politics rather than actually advocating or joining forces with advocacy groups who are already advocating for the things that would help the art world. The, um, art, and yes, lot- the art world does love to insist on purity. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes art's sense of its own specialness, like contributes to to the oppression of its participants. And so right now, I think there, there's a lot of, and in local politics in Los Angeles, there's so much to do. We have so much corruption at the local level. And so much of the city council's behavior in supporting development and in taking backroom bribes from developers and in changing zoning rules has made it a lot harder for artists to afford studios in the city. And it's also made it harder for many lower income people to live in this city. And I and, and and those interests are really aligned. And I and I think that artists and art workers and people in the art world should really be working alongside those who are trying to fighting for renter protections on the local level. Old fashioned coalition building. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the the art world is not great at building coalitions. Period. But but both art making and the study of art tend to be solitary practices. Yeah, and I think that's that's really been to our detriment oftentimes. And, and you know this thing too, where there was a group called the Artist Political Action Network that was formed in, after in the wake of Trump's election by LA artists, by a group of LA artists. And it was like, it, you know, it it was exactly what it sounds like: artists getting together to figure out how to take political action. And and it seemed, why why wouldn't we just join political action networks that already exist, that already know how to function, that 
what is what makes it special that it's artists who formed it? And if we accept that art isn't special in the fact that the things it, the things artists need and the things the art world needs from politicians are the same things many other people need, maybe we'll get more done. I think that's a really important point. In a, in a previous pre-art world life, I worked uh, with the NAACP on projects and lived a few blocks from Julian Bond and used to bump into him at my, my local coffee house all the time. And if I had a dollar for every time Julian Bond finished a conversation with me or a conversation I heard him have with somebody else about the imperative of taking an issue and building a coalition around it as being the only path to success, you know, I would have, I would, I would be retired. So I think that's a really, you know, I think the point you're raising is a really, uh, really important one. I have written before about how there are, well, especially now given the collapse of the, the National Rifle Association or near collapse of the National Rifle Association, there are, there are more Americans on art museum membership roles than there are on the NRA than there are believed to be on the NRA membership roles. Art museums have never organized their constituencies in any meaningful way, which is an enormous fail for the field. Think of how LACMA or SFMOMA could, well, maybe LACMA is a, a bad example as a, as a county institution. Think of how MOCA or SFMOMA could have organized its membership in pursuit of the goals you just identified and how meaningful that would have been or could be and possibly, hopefully successful. Uh, so, so with that, I, I think we will both urge people to uh, vote, <laughs> to request absentee mail-in or drop-off or early voting ballots whenever possible, and to be involved. And, and, and a reminder, just if you're a member of an art museum or, or three art museums, just because that art museum doesn't have a pathway for hearing from its members or uh, acting upon member interests, that doesn't mean you shouldn't hold the institution of which you're a member accountable. Ask for things. Insist upon things. I, I, I looked into SF MoMA's 990s a couple months ago and noticed that 9% of SF MoMA's annual expenses came through membership dues, um, annual membership payments, of a voice and a source of funds that is completely unrepresented on that institution's board. You know, if you're a member, ask museums why members aren't represented within the institution's man management structure. I mean, that's that's one of the many changes that could come out of the present. Catherine Wagley, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.